Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the black hole into which all new planning information is bunged, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. An Essex council has withdrawn its local plan, despite it being found sound. We'll ask why. The Prime Minister has said that the government will make it easier to convert farm buildings into homes. We'll explore what he might mean. And Housing Secretary Michael Gove has corrected his previous suggestion that the new National Planning Policy Framework will be published in July. We'll explain what happened. And in our deep dive section, I'll be talking to our special correspondent Joey Gardner about the official guidance on preventing water pollution from development which so far is claimed to have blocked 100,000 homes from going forward. By the end of the show, you should know enough to survive any chance encounter with the chief executive at the coffee machine. So, time to don the hard hat. Ready to go in? OK. Well, here we are again in room 106. Hmm, the rock ledge near the entrance where they keep the local plans is looking a bit light. Well, that might have something to do with your first story. Tell us about the sound local plan that's been withdrawn. Well, early this month, Castle Point Council in Essex formally withdrew its emerging local plan, despite, as you say, a planning inspector recommending that the document is adopted. So the inspector, Philip Lewis, found that the 5,000-home plan was sound in his report, which was published in March. But now, in, in a very unusual development, the council has, despite having put you know, literally years of hard work into producing this plan, decided to withdraw it. OK, and why do we think this has happened? So, as our readers will probably remember from other recent examples of where councils have withdrawn or, or delayed local plans, um, the issue of protecting Greenbelt is the reason that's been cited by councillors. So the plan proposes releasing 220 hectares of greenbelt land for developments. And Castle Point, the um, the district, is a very heavily greenbelt area. So what happened in March, after the inspector's report was received, members voted against adopting the plan. So officers had put forward a recommendation to adopt the plan, as would normally happen in a case where an inspector finds that it's sound. But members decided to vote against that. And then the plan was, it was kind of left in, in limbo, then we had the local elections in May where the council had formerly been conservative run but the administration but it changed control so now you have uh, an independent run council and at the end of May the new independent leader of the council indicated that the council was going to consider withdrawing the plan and he expressed concerns about the levels of green belt release and he said the housing target was nonsense and then last week at a special council meeting, members voted unanimously to withdraw the documents so they would start work immediately on a new local plan that reflects what they said was the central government's stated aim to protect and preserve the precious green belt in our local area. So that was the motion that they, um, they backed at the meeting. And it said a priority of the new local plan would be to produce a housing target that genuinely reflects local need and that would be lower than previous proposals and also said that all housing development should prioritise brownfield development. And our readers will remember that neighbouring Basildon Council also withdrew its local plan that was very advanced, similarly over Greenbelt concerns back in March. OK, so have any other reasons been given by the council or, or does that 
sum up the essential justification that they're giving? That's all the reasons that I'm aware of. Okay. So what do you think the consequences might be for the authority and for development in the area? So firstly, this means the council will be without a local plan. And its most recent local plan dates back to 1998. So it's 24 years old. It would carry very little weight in um, planning decisions. The council has been attempting to produce a new one for a very long time, but it keeps facing repeated delays and and setbacks. And officers actually warned the um, councillors last week at the meeting where they voted to withdraw it that doing so would mean that the council would have less control because it wouldn't have an up-to-date suite of policies to ensure that development proposals provide maximum benefit for the borough. And it said that um, without an up-to-date local plan or an unadopted but sound local plan, the ability of the council to to make sure that development proposals don't um, harm the environment and you know, help residents would be diminished. But that wasn't enough to persuade councillors who presumably feel that vulnerability to um, speculative development is is one thing, but to see unpopular development go ahead that they've in some way sanctioned is is um, politically an even worse place to be. Yes, that's right, and. Because Castle Point is a heavily greenbelt area, then under national policy, development on greenbelt is heavily restricted. So I guess they figured that the impact of speculative development will be um, diminished because of the the amounts of greenbelt in the area. Good point. So are any other councils delaying local plans? There seems to have been a lot about local plan delays in our in our recent coverage. Yes, there's. Um, so as our readers remember, that there's been that we counted ten earlier in the year where um, councils either had either delayed or withdrawn their local plans, and that was before Castle Point. We've had two more alongside Castle Point in the past fortnight where um, councils have announced delays. One is another Essex council, Uttlesford, where it's it's announced a, a fresh delay to its new local plan, and it's indicated that it's likely to be adopted well after the government's December 2023 deadline that it's it's said that councils must have local plans in place. Uttlesford, as our readers will remember, is is um, is currently under special measures for um, its decision-making. So the second council is East Hampshire District Council, and that's announced a delay to its local plan production by a year. It's announced a second consultation on the plan, which it said was required because of what it called the government's deeply flawed planning rules and brutal housing targets. Okay, so the, the delays to local plans continue. Yes, absolutely. So my second story is a speech by the Prime Minister earlier this month on housing, where he said the government was going to make it easier to convert disused agricultural buildings into homes for local first-time buyers. So it was a wide-ranging speech. He touched on lots of different issues, but one thing that will um, make our readers' ears prick up is that he said the government will sensitively make use of existing planning rights, for example, by making it easier to turn disused agricultural buildings into homes for local first-time buyers and to support farmers in growing and diversifying their businesses. Okay, so obviously most of our listeners will know that the government has, in the past decade, made it significantly easier to convert agricultural buildings into housing through increasing the amount of permitted development that applies to um, to agricultural buildings. What, what do we think the um, Prime Minister was referring to in terms of making it easier again? Well, it's not entirely clear. I mean, the speech was typically vague. As you say, the government relaxed planning rules for um, converting agricultural buildings to homes 
back in 2014, it introduced a new permitted development right that's now called Class Q, which has been rather controversial. And um, for a long time, figures showed that the refusal rate by councils of this particular PD right was significantly higher compared to other kinds of rights. So this, this Class Q permitted development right was again expanded in, by the government in 2018. So it's already been relaxed further to allow for bigger properties to be converted. We asked the Housing Department if the Prime Minister's comments indicated that fresh planning changes around these conversions were in the pipeline. In a statement, it said the Department will carefully consider these rights and explore opportunities for taking this further with a focus on sensitively converting agricultural buildings in rural areas. So it's not a very um, committed promise there. Interestingly, one key difference with the current right is that the PM speech referred to local first-time buyers making use of it, and that's not a criteria for consideration under the current rules. And how have bodies in the sector responded to this? Well, the Country Land and Business Association, which is a, a lobby group for rural landowners and businesses that is keen on a degree of planning deregulation, has um, welcomed the comments as evidence of what it called major reforms to the planning system that will ease restrictions on the conversion of disused farm buildings into residential properties. And it said the measures followed a campaign by the CLA and would be extended to designated landscapes, including national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. So clearly they think that this is an indicator of um, a further deregulation of planning rules in rural areas that would involve some current restrictions in protected areas being withdrawn. Okay. And um, has there been any sort of further follow-up from the Prime Minister or anyone else in government? Well, early this month, in a reply to complaints on Twitter by Jeremy Clarkson about the lack of government support for farmers, Johnson actually tweeted a, a clip in which he was speaking about the government's food strategy, which was published this month. He said, when farmers want to develop their property, turn a barn into a bistro or whatever you want to do, we want to make sure computer doesn't say no, that we help farmers to make the most of their crops and land as well, which again suggests some deregulation of planning rules in rural areas is in the pipeline. And um, you know, Jeremy Clarkson is, is a long-term sort of complainant of um, what he says is, is overly rigid interpretation of planning rules, which has prevented him carrying out redevelopment on his new farm. Okay, of course, um, in any situation where a applicant feels like their application hasn't been considered properly in line with the planning rules, they do, do always have the option of going to appeal. But I guess this might be suggesting that um, that there's going to be some further movement from um, from the government in terms of further relaxations on agricultural conversions. But um, as you say, not entirely clear. Yes, that's right. Okay, John, and what about your third story? Well, in the last podcast, we talked about the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, <laughs> announcing in Parliament at the start of June, that the new MPPF will come out next month. And we were puzzling over this, as it suggested the government would either would, would publish a sort of final draft of the MPPF or publish a, a revised draft for consultation, both of which contradicted comments by the chief planner that the government was going to publish a prospectus first, outlining the changes. So what's happened now is that Gove has clarified his comments in Parliament. He's actually issued a formal correction in the House of Commons, and he's confirmed that it will actually be a document outlining the government's proposed changes. Okay, so more of a kind of draft of what's coming up as opposed to the revised NPPF itself. Yes, that's right. He said that a document setting out how we intend to change national planning policy will be published in July. 
And we asked the housing department about it and they also confirmed to us that the prospectus will um, set out how we intend to change national planning policy and will be published next month. I don't know about you, John, but it rings a bell with me that the government has previously published major planning documents at the end of July when everybody's looking forward to going on holiday. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I expect Room 106 will be even more full of paperwork than ever. Okay. Well, many thanks, John. And of course, more details of all of these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But I'm now going to have to leave you for a bit to go and do this week's deep dive. See you later. Bye for now. So this week's deep dive is going to be looking at the issue of nutrient neutrality and the problem of concerns about water pollution leading to housing permissions being stopped in several areas of the country. The person who's been looking at this for us is our special correspondent, Joey Gardner. And I'm just wandering through the caverns trying to find Joey, who has been pouring over a uh, immense amount of detail about this issue. Ah, Joey, there you are. Richard, hello. How are you doing? A a while since we've come across each other in room 106. Indeed, I've uh, spent most of my time uh, pouring over Natural England reports down here in the catacombs. Excellent. Well, yes, uh, it was a uh, big article, so um, presumably involved a prolonged incarceration. Certainly did. The question I'm hoping you can answer for us, Joey, is how big a problem is this issue of housing permissions being blocked by concerns about water pollution likely to become for planning authorities and developers? There's been a lot of news coverage in the past few months about an increasing number of areas in which housing permissions are being blocked by these concerns. So for starters, can you tell us why this number has suddenly increased? Well, it's all down to new guidance from Natural England that was issued in the middle of March related to nutrient pollution in um, sites protected under habitats rules. And that new guidance expanded the areas affected by these issues and meant that a much larger swathe of the countries suddenly had these problems with essentially issuing planning permissions because of the impact of nutrient pollution on their areas. Can you give us any sense of you know how the number of areas affected has changed? Well, it's a huge scope. Originally, there were 32 authorities. There's been an additional uh, 42 authorities affected now with the new Natural England guidance that takes it up to 74 authorities. Originally, most of them, the affected areas were in the parts of the south and southeast areas like the Solent, the Somerset Levels and Kent. But now with the new guidance, it stretches up to East Anglia across Norwich and parts of the Midlands, parts of the north and, and, and particularly the northeast around the Tees Valley. Uh, huge areas where effectively no planning permissions can be issued. So very much a national problem now? Well, very much a significant problem in large areas across the country. Obviously, there remain areas which are unaffected by this, but certainly it's not limited to one region. Fair enough. Okay. And how many homes do we think are being held up by this problem? It is difficult to say the estimate that everyone is banding around and which we've which we've used because it's it's really the best estimate out there comes from the home builders 
Federation is, and that's for around 100,000 homes being held up in the uh, planning pipeline. I wouldn't put too much weight on the specifics of that number. Part of that number comes from the original areas which relied on data from publications, from council papers and other sources which they kind of gathered together in a desktop exercise to add up to a total number. And parts of that number come from the latest additional areas under the new guidance, which they asked their members to estimate how many homes were affected by the guidance. Put those two together, they came up with a around 100,000 number. I don't think anyone thinks it's exactly the figure. In some senses, it might be an underestimate because there might be large large areas in which people are not bothering to submit applications because they know it's simply no point because um, local authorities aren't determining them. I think the only thing we can say for sure is that whatever the number is, it's a significant one. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue about that. Whether it's exactly 100,000 is is a kind of a moot point. Yeah, but uh, nobody is suggesting that this isn't a significant issue, are they? Is it the um, obviously the HBF are very concerned about it, and the um, the government is echoing that concern. They're acknowledging that this is a this is something that is a big issue. Well, I think planning authorities are very very concerned about it as well because they have obligations to meet their local housing need, and and those that are affected are, are wondering exactly how they're going to do so and what impacts that might have both on the people in their areas, but also on their ability to kind of meet their kind of planning performance targets, etc. Yeah, of course, of course. So can you explain what requirements the, the Natural England Guidance places on planning authorities and developers? What, what do they have to do that they otherwise wouldn't have to do? Well, simply, they have to ensure that any development in which there are overnight stays are nutrient neutral. Effectively, that means residential developments, give or take. And nutrient neutral means it's not adding to nutrient pollution in the river catchment. It sounds on the face of it fairly simple, but actually those solutions are in reality, very difficult to deliver. It's very hard if you're a developer yourself to stop any nutrient pollution coming off your your development. So in most cases, you're reliant on the local authority coming up with a much bigger solution, which you can then buy into or pay into in in a kind of credit agreement to offset the pollution that you're going to create effectively with your development. So developers need kind of those sort of options. They need schemes which they can pay these contributions into to to offset the nutrient effect of their schemes. They're in desperate need of those schemes, but they're really very complicated in many cases to work up from from authorities. I mean, there are some simple short-term options. If, for example, if you're a, a local authority that owns your own council housing stock, you could pay for water conservation measures on your own council housing that can improve the nutrient pollution in your area which you could then offset against some new development you could also pay farmers to plant winter crops which actually takes up excess nutrient from the soil which means less goes into rivers so there are some short-term solutions but the bulk of the longer-term solutions which actually have more of a significant impact 
such as retiring farmland, turning them into woodland or creating wetlands, which is probably the best solution. These are actually quite complex things to do. And you actually have to get quite a lot of proof that you've actually done them and done them in the right way before you're actually allowed to rely on them as an offsetting measure in order to allow you to permit a planning application. So the government says it's provided tools to help council avoid planning delays. What are they and and how effective have they been? Well, there aren't really any tools to help council solve the problems here. It's effectively a mislabeling, I think. What the government has provided is tools to help councils diagnose the extent of the problem that they have. So things like the Natural England calculators, etc., to work out the extent of the problem. The government has also provided money for each catchment in the form of £100,000 grant to hire staff to get to the bottom of the problem. And it's also kind of convened PAS to set up a forum for developers and local authorities to kind of meet and discuss and learn from each other and learn best practice to work out the ways forward. PAS being the planning advisory service, is it? Of course, part of the local government association. All of these are are, are eminently worthy things and definitely worth doing, but none of these are actually off-the-shelf tools that councils can use to solve the problem that they have. There simply aren't any out there at the moment. Okay. So you've talked about the options that local authorities have. You've talked about the, 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 the tools the government is trying to provide. Clearly, this is not something that's, uh, even when equipped with those tools or those options, this is not something that's simple for authorities to resolve. How long, typically, does it take authorities to get into a position where they can restart granting permissions, you know, after the advice has been um, issued to them? Well, the experience from the seminars convened by the Planning Advisory Service, the people they got around the table, they told me was that it, it was at least nine months before local authorities were commonly able to get a solution together. But clearly the evidence is, talking to developers and others, that it it can be much, much longer in many cases. There are situations where authorities have been in this situation since the moratoriums were first imposed in 2019 for some in 2020 for others and still still don't have solutions at this point two or three years down the line so to a certain extent it depends on the physical environment the area the extent of options available you know how organized the local authority is uh, whether it's nitrate or a phosphate problem because phosphates are often a harder problem to solve etc but certainly no one should be under any illusions that it's going to be a quick issue to sort out one of the things that your article makes very clear is that a lot of the nutrient pollution in water comes from sources other than development such as inadequate wastewater treatment can developers or or authorities do anything to address this problem by helping water companies improve the effectiveness of their um, treatment works not at the moment, no. Unfortunately, it's not allowed under Ofwat's 
rules under which it regulates the water companies off what allows water companies to invest in their infrastructure along five-year investment cycles where it regulates their spending. We're currently in the middle of one investment cycle running from 2020 to 2025. They're thinking about the next investment cycle called PR24, which will run obviously from 2025 to 2030. As we are in the middle of that, it's very difficult to break into that cycle to get them to invest in things that they haven't already planned and packaged up into their pipeline of works. And Ofwat's rules, they're not actually allowed to accept developer contributions. Now, the government has talked about a pilot project which might allow water companies to do this prior to the next five-year investment cycle. But since the, the March announcement, no details of this pilot project have been forthcoming. So we don't really know what status that is and, and when any further news on that will arise. But the, the people that I've asked, no, no one has, has really heard anything more of it. Okay, but what we do know is that the government does seem to be acknowledging that maybe it would be good if the system could be changed so that developers could make contributions to improving wastewater treatment and is looking into whether it can do something about it. The government certainly does seem to be looking at that. It's it's made that signal very clearly and certainly in its statements around the investment cycle for the next five years, it's making positive noises about a much greater extent of investment in the kind of wastewater treatment works investment that would start to tackle this problem. But as for the specifics of that and as for the extent of that and whether it will be enough to really start to solve this problem, because one of the ironies about this is that this whole thing from Natural England of pausing all these planning permissions is just simply as they say, a neutral approach. They're trying not to make the problem worse. They're saying development should not be permitted unless it, it can be proven not to make the problem worse. But it isn't, it's nothing about actually making this pollution problem better. What the government really needs to do, most people in industry think, is get a much bigger solution with the farming system, with agriculture, with the water companies to actually sort this pollution problem out and make it better and clean up the rivers so that this doesn't become such a big issue and the extent to which that is being tackled as part of the next investment cycles is not yet clear. Okay well thanks for that Joey I mean it sounds like the problem is sounding you know fairly intractable at the moment although I suppose if one's looking for positives there are options that authorities can use and the government is at least aware of the problem and uh, acknowledging that things need to be done about it. At the moment, it affects 74 authorities. That obviously more than doubled this year. Are we likely to see this affecting a lot more authorities in the future? It seems unlikely, given what I've heard from people and certainly given uh, all of the upset and the fuss created by this situation and, and the additional 44 authorities identified by Natural England earlier this year. No one has heard tell that Natural England is, is looking at more authorities at this point. And the other potentially reassuring nugget is that there is a sense that Natural England 
in the future, if, if it is starting to investigate areas, it will look to alert authorities that it is looking into those areas, that there is therefore potentially a risk that at some point in the future, it may identify their protected habitats as being in unfavourable condition and they might be affected by this issue, which might give authorities some chance to prepare and less of the shock of this coming out of the blue and therefore the extensive kind of moratoriums that we're currently seeing. So hopefully not a high likelihood of, of anything imminent on that. Okay. And if anything does happen, it's much less likely to be this kind of overnight realisation that you suddenly got to stop giving planning permissions and haven't got any kind of mitigation planned. That's what we would hope. Okay, Joey. Well, thank you very much indeed for that. I feel a lot better briefed on this topic than before our conversation. I'll leave you to continue uh, sifting through the the contents of of, of Room 106 and uh, hope to see you soon in the future. Thanks very much, Richard. Good to see you. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his reader's choice. The story that's caught the eye of our audience without necessarily being something that's going to affect everybody's working life. Oh, there he is. Hello, Richard. My reader's choice this week is one of the most read stories of the past fortnight about a district council planning committee chairman who has quit his role after being accused of a string of breaches of planning regulations when he uh, allegedly altered his Grade 2 listed Cotswold home. For legal reasons, we can't say too much about it, but the um, councillor, who's a member of Tewkesbury Borough Council, resigned as the planning committee chair early this month after he pleaded not guilty at Gloucester Crown Court in a preliminary hearing. So he was accused of carrying out unauthorised alterations and demolitions at his listed home. And following his not guilty plea, he will stand trial next year. The case is actually being brought by another council, Cotswold District Council, and they confirm that the charges relate to unauthorised alterations between July 2020 and December 2021 in contravention of the Planning, Listed Buildings and Conservation Areas Act of 1990. OK, John, well, I, I can see why that one would have attracted a lot of interest. Um, if you want to know more about it, have a look at planningresource.co.uk. But uh, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins Subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks to you for listening. Goodbye.